Good morning. It's time for us to begin. Go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. I realize we split the class. The issue was we forgot there's a Wednesday night class. I don't know if we, I can't remember what the deal was with it, but we thought we had one less class than we actually have. So I do have time to hit the second half of Proverbs, but we split it up and did Ecclesiastes between one and two. So um, my apologies for that. So we're going to hit the second half. We, last class, we talked about the way Proverbs is laid out, and uh, hopefully that was kind of enlightening a little bit to you. You can look at it and kind of get the flow of what's going on here. It starts with an introduction in chapter 1, those first nine verses. Some people would say the first seven verses. I go with first nine. Then chapter 1 and verse 10 throughout the, the next, uh, through, uh, through the beginning of chapter 10. There's 10 speeches there. That's what we spent the majority of last class going over, those 10 speeches that talk about wisdom and folly and, and all of this. And there's interspersed in, that, uh, in those speeches four different uh, speeches about uh, lady wisdom. That's going to come up again today as we talk about the last couple of chapters. <clears throat> so that's the, And then the main section starts in chapter 10 and goes through chapter 29 which is basically sayings of Solomon, wisdom sayings. Chapters 1 through, uh, or 10 through 24 is um, just the, the sayings that Solomon had, the Proverbs of Solomon, as it calls them, in chapter 10 and verse 1. Then if you flip to chapter 25, it's more of the same, but it has this special heading. These, are, or these also are... Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So that kind of a breakdown of that section, chapter 25 through 29, is things that Hezekiah wrote that Solomon had said. Chapter 30, we switch gears, and 30 and 31 is the words of two different people. Agur, the son of Jacob, in chapter 30, we'll look at him today, and then the words of Lemuel, which his mother taught him, in chapter 31. Now, I'm not sure about chapter 31 in verse 10 through 31. I don't know if that's part of what Lemuel's mother taught him, or it's a, not an addendum, but a closeout to the entire book of Proverbs. We'll look at that uh, today, this morning. So, the individual Proverbs, we talked about this last time. They're structured in certain ways. We won't go over all that again, uh, the way that each individual statement is made. Um, <clears throat> but this is the introduction. We went over that last time, the speeches. Let me just flip forward through those since we've already gone through them. And uh, don't necessarily have time to go over all that again since we've done it one time. The main section... Now, in, in two classes, you're not going to be able to hit every proverb. Um, Mike can hit a few. Some of them are kind of, uh, I don't know if I'd say strange. They're more memorable than others are. But um, we're going to look at some, some characteristics of that section. Uh, so Proverbs of Solomon 10 through 22, 16, then sayings of the wise. I didn't put that in there when I, we were talking about it just now, but... Uh, when you look at chapter 22 and you look at verse 17, it kind of breaks it up again. And it said, incline your ear to hear words. Uh, some, some have this 
this heading here that says these are the sayings of the wise. And then in chapter 24 and verse 23, it says these are further sayings of the wise. Some uh, ancient um, copies include those sayings, but not all of them. And then, of course, Proverbs collected by Hezekiah. There are four types of people that these Proverbs are written to. And you can pretty much look through life and say, yeah, there's pretty much four types of people in the world uh, broken up by these. Number one is there's the wise person. This is what we should all attain to be. This is what Proverbs is written to us for us to seek after, for us to become, and for us to implement. Uh, look at chapter 1. We'll go back there and just look at these different things that are said. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 5 says they will hear and increase in learning. Well, who will hear and increase in learning? Who is that? It's the wise. The wise will hear and increase in learning. How many, uh, how many of us have had children and we look at this statement and we want, that's what we want. Someone that's going to listen and increase in learning and not have to learn the hard way, the school of hard knocks. We don't want that. We'd rather learn by listening and paying attention and things like that. Chapter 9 and verse 8 says, the wise, says this about the wise. Um, chapter 9 and verse 8, Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. They take correction, right? That doesn't say the wise man never has to be given correction, does it? No, they will love correction. They will take correction. You ever know anybody that just wouldn't take any correction? Maybe you've had a child like that. Maybe you have a coworker like that. Some, somebody that's younger than you, somebody comes on to the job, and they just don't seem to want to listen to anything that you have to say, even though you may have been doing this for 20 years. You know, So uh, be wise, take correction. We all can learn from that. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 9 also says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will <clears throat> be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So they receive instruction, and that in, through that instruction, they use it to actually get wiser. This is the, one of the types of people, the wise. Chapter 9 and verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So an attribute of a wise person is the fear of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? So remember that. Look at chapter 10 and verse 14. Chapter 10 and verse 14. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. So they obtain knowledge, which is going to help them in future endeavors. That's an attribute of the wise person. Skipping forward to chapter 21, chapter 21 and verse 20. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. So this person, uh, the wise person is one who is blessed by God. Get the idea they're blessed by God because they apply the wisdom that they've gotten to their life and don't just cast it aside and say, well, I'm not going to live by that. Chapter 29 and verse 11 tells us that they, they think before they speak. What a novel attribute that we all need to have that sometimes we just don't. And I stand before you say, guilty of that. I don't always think before I speak. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. 
So that tells us what we ought to do. We need to, there's, there's certain situations where it may be that we feel the need to speak up quickly, maybe reel that in a little bit and, and measure the situation, read the room kind of, and see what we need to say before we do it. Don't, think, don't, don't speak before you think. Second type of person, um, the simple, the simple person. So we've got the wise person. Now we're up to the simple person. Chapter 1, we're going to start there again. And these are types of people you will see addressed in the Proverbs. I know we're not, in some of these, not necessarily in chapters 10 through 29. But chapter 1 and verse 22 says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. So this, this person, the simple person, they feel no need to change no matter what it is they've learned. And that's not, that's not a proper way to be. That's not a, a, we should never come into a situation thinking we know everything. Anybody have a point? All right. Sorry. <clears throat> never come into a situation thinking, I know it all. I don't need to know anything else. I know it all already. That's not necessarily a good way to be. Chapter 7 and verse 7 tells us this about the simple it says, I saw and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding. So this simple people, uh, person that is simple has this lack of understanding anything. Chapter 9, verse 13 tells us that they don't know anything. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. So we, we need to try to not be this way, Correct. Absolutely. Chapter 14 and verse 15 tells us something else. Chapter 14 and verse 15. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. Certainly something we need to put, always put in practice. Don't believe everything you hear. Uh, be in trouble today if you, if you believe everything you hear. We need to be able to discern things for ourselves. Chapter 19 and verse 25, chapter 19, and verse 25, strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. So this uh, person that is, uh, the they simple person tells you how they learn. They learn by example, by watching other people. And hopefully they'll keep learning that way. They have to learn by experience. Experience is a difficult teacher. Right? Because uh, you can imagine if, if, you're a, if you're a young person, we had three sons, and we had a good bit of problem with the first two. Not, not terrible, bad problems uh, when they were younger. But the third one always seemed to not do those same dumb things. He was a quick learner and knew took that opportunity to, uh, to learn from their experience, not by his own experience. So it, it goes that way with a lot of things, you know? You're going, into, you're going into a marriage. Learn from wise people how you might treat your spouse. Don't learn by example or trial and error. That's not going to be a good way to do it. Same way with work. We don't go to work. I don't go into the operating room and try to learn completely by experience. I listen to other people that had been there and done that for years and learn from them. And after that, you can sort of implement your own ways. Chapter 22 and verse 3 
tells us if they don't learn, they're going to suffer for it. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. They, they don't see warning signs. That's what, what one of the things that tells you someone is, is simple. Another type of person that it talks about here, so the wise, the simple, now the fool. It, that's above the level of the simple. I guess you'd say it's somewhere between wise and simple. This person is just a, a fool, someone that really should know better. Tells us they have no fear of God. Chapter 14 and verse 9, let's go there. Trying to move through these sort of rapidly. Spend the rest of our time in the last two chapters. Chapter 14 and verse 9 Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. So they mock sin. Chapter 1 and verse 22, we all have read that multiple times probably, tells us that they hate knowledge. They hate to be told something. They hate to be told by someone wise this is the proper way. Partially because usually that proper way of doing something is going to do you less heartache. It's going to be a lot more work <laughs> to do that and a lot less pleasurable for you. Chapter 10 and verse 23 tells us simply that they just love doing wrong. Chapter 10 and verse 23 reads this way. To do evil is like sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. So it says it's like sports to a, to a fool. Chapter 12 and verse 15, they're only concerned with themselves, this foolish person is. Chapter 12 and verse 15 the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Chapter 13 and verse 19. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. So they think that you who are doing right are actually an abomination when it's what they're doing that is, that is totally against God. So how many times have we seen that in, in today's climate? Uh, chapter 15 in verse 5 says they're rebellious. A fool despises his father's instructions, but he who perceives correction is prudent. See that juxtaposition that tells us what way we're supposed to go, but what way the fool goes is, is, not, is not good. Chapter 17 and verse 10, and I'm sure we've all had experience with this, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So they're difficult to give correction to. And maybe we've had experience giving that. Maybe we've had this experience getting that sometimes when we're, when we're growing up, when we're, when we're younger, or if we're just particularly hard-headed about certain things. So the wise, the simple, the fool, the last, um, go through these quickly, last person, type of person is the mocker, the mocker. Particularly unpleasant to be around for the wise person, obviously. Chapter 1 and verse 2. They enjoy what they do, so they're not going to change. Let's read that verse in chapter 1 and the second verse. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive words of understanding. Uh, to keep going, chapter 9 and verse 7, if you correct the mocker, they're not going to be silent about that. They're going to try to cause you problems. Chapter 9 and verse 7, he who corrects a scoffer, another word for mocker. Um, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. You kind of step out on a limb when you try to correct someone who's a mocker or a scoffer. It's going to probably be more difficult, a more difficult thing than, 
rebuking other people. Chapter 9 and verse 8, do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Let you maybe if you, if you correct someone, you get one of two uh, responses from it, and that's kind of indicative of who you're dealing with. A mocker's going to hate you for, for any kind of correction. Chapter 13 and verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So he's not going to hear it. Chapter 22 and verse 10. Chapter 22 and verse 10. Cast out the scoffer, and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. So when you have a scoffer in your life, or a mocker, if you get rid of them out of your life, contention's going to go with them. That's, a, that's a, a pleasant way to live. Chapter 24 and verse 9 tells us this, The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to man. Nobody likes being around someone who is a mocker or a scoffer. So those are your four types of, of people that are in this section. You'll find all kinds of good stuff. Now, I will say something about, about that section, chapter 10 through 29. Um, the, there's a lot of sayings there, and, uh, and, and they, they're, they're generalities about life. They're, they're not sayings that we really go to and... I guess what I'm trying to say is they are not axioms. They're not axiomatic sayings. An, an axiomatic saying is something that's always true no matter what circumstances that there are. These are ma more maxims about life. These are generally true depending on how you live. If you live according to the precepts of wisdom that God has set forth in these things, it is more likely that you're going to experience pleasure in life of a good nature that you're going to be pleasing to God, you're going to be pleasing to other people, you're going to be beneficial to all people. But it is not guaranteed, right? It is not guaranteed. The, 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 I guess the most famous one that we look at is uh, train up a child in the way he should go. And then when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a guarantee, right? It's not a guarantee that you're going to raise that child in the ways of the scriptures and that they are going to stay faithful to those. They are their own person, and they may choose, when they're older, not to live according to that. And they may die young, even. You may tra train up your child, they go off into, into some ungodly lifestyle, and then they die. So it's not always true. It just the, the likelihood is, if you train up your child in the way that they should go according to the Scriptures, they're going to have a better chance of living that way as they get older, right? Kind of like the iron sharpens iron thing. So one man's countenance sharpens another. Maybe you try to sh have iron sharpen iron with another man that you think is a, a good person and you get carried off uh, into some false teaching or something like that. Point said, they're not, they're not axioms to live by, right? They're wise sayings that these are the way you should live. And if you are living that way, if you are training someone in that way, if you are implementing these things, you are likely going to have these experiences in your life. So that's, that's what is, is going on there. Any points about these first 29 chapters or questions? All right. Yes? I was thinking of more about a person who's more of a faith 
Yes. Yeah, these, yeah, he's saying these, these things, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8 is what Brent was referencing there. And basically the, the statement of if, if you live according to these precepts, it's going to be better for you while you're here. It's going to be, give you the best shot at, a, at, at pleasing God and having a good life. So good point. Thank you for that. Anybody else? All right, well, let's move on to chapter 30. Chapter 30, go ahead and turn there. And this is the, one of the final two chapters. You don't know the nature of these fellows that are mentioned here. One is Agur, the son of Jacob, and one is Lemuel, uh, the, the oracle which his mother taught him. We'll spend the rest of our time talking about that. Um, Agur, we'll just read these. Some of the stuff in chapter 30 is, is odd. I'd mentioned in the first class about the way the Proverbs are kind of laid out, each individual one. This is a chapter where you have several lists of, of Proverbs. I don't know that I have a handle on all of them very well, but uh, nevertheless, we'll give it a shot. It's called a burden, right? The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. Uh, now, utterance means burden, right, in here. Um, same word is used in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 1, and chapter 12 and verse 1, and Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1, where those, those prophets call what they have to speak a burden. So Jacob has a burden to, to lay on us here. Um, the second half of verse 1, I wanted to bring this out. If you look, if you're someone who sits down to read, and you might read from different translations, right? Um, I typically did that when I was preaching. I would, I would work my way from the most thought-for-thought thought translation up to more something would be more literal. So I could get this generalized understanding all the way over to something where you could look at it more word-for-word. Word. Not completely word-for-word, word, because that's pretty, pretty impossible for us to, to do and get some understanding of it. And some of the words just have uh, are idiomatic statements. But um, the two ways of... Looking at this, um, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. I think that's in, I've got it up here as in the Newburgh Standard, the New King James, King James, and the uh, New English Translation. So that's what, how it translates it there. We're probably most familiar with that. When you look at verse 1, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Now, the ESV and the NIV 2011 and the New Living Translation translates it this way. I am weary, O God, and worn out. That's more of a translation of what those words Ithiel and Ukal actually mean. So we don't know if Ithiel and Ukal are actual people or if he's just saying, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Really, either one of them would fit, right? He could be talking to people there that have these names or the, the meaning behind their names would also have meaning to what he's saying. He's got a burden, and I'm weary and worn out, oh God. So just wanted you guys to be aware of that, that you might read different translations and have something completely different there when you're reading it. 
There's three parts to uh, Agur's play thing here. Chapter two through uh, chapter thirty and verse two through nine. Verse one is the confession or the title. Two through nine is his confession and his petition, where he's going to lay himself out as just someone who's not worthy and all of this kind of stuff. Let's read verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So he's basically saying what kind of person he is. Say, I'm more stupid than any man. And then he's saying, remove these things from me. Don't give me riches. Don't give me poverty. Let me ride that middle road there uh, as he's talking. There, um, and then in verse 10 through 33, it's Agur's admonitions. We'll look at those in, in a minute his confession and petition in chapter 2 and verse 9. Um, this self-abasement where he puts himself down. He indicts himself with just this complete lack of understanding where he uses the word in the, in the words of the New King James, I am more stupid than any man. Um, and then the lack, of, the lack of knowledge that he has extends all the way to the knowledge of God. I don't know the knowledge of God the way I ought to is basically how we should read that. Then he exalts God, starting in, in verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? These are really rhetorical questions, aren't they? Who's done these things? Who, who's got an answer there? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? The answer is God. Yeah, it's, it's just... There's nobody else. Now, there is a messianic hint in there for us, isn't there? When you look at it, verse 4 at the end of it. So we've got this. We'll just read verse 4 again. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? God. And what is his son's name? Where did that come from? This is one of those things. We get to the New Testament we find out that God has a begotten son, his only begotten son, Jesus, who is the Lord incarnate. And we look back and we have these glimpses of Christ in the Old Testament. Just little pictures. And here's one of them. Who is, who is this? It's God. And what is his son's name? We know the answer to that. Isn't that amazing? So the exaltation of God, the trustworthiness of God's word in the rest of that Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Famous statements made in this, in this proverb. Then he has a plea to God about how he wants God to treat him. Keep deception and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. It's going to be better for me if you don't do those things. 
All right, so that's the first part, his confession. Then his admonitions, chapter 10. As I said, there's lists that go in this here. So the actions of the haughty man, chapter 30 and verse 10 through 14. Do not malign a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet he is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. So the actions here of the haughty man are in view. He's saying this is a shame that there are people that are this way. Let me not be that way. There are things that are insatiable. Chapter 15, or chapter 30 and verse 15. This is a kind of a famous part. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Then we go into a list. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. So insatiable things that we need to be aware of and be wary of. And what's the one that probably we need to be concerned with among that list? You might say the grave because we're going to be there one day. Barren womb we can't do much about. The earth we certainly can't do anything about. Fire isn't there. But what about the one before that? The leech. The leech. Give and give. Are you going to be that kind of person who's always looking for a handout? It'll never be enough if that's the kind of person that you desire to be. So, then there's the scornful child in verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So, a very vivid picture of what's uh, possibly waiting the mocker of their parents. So, any thoughts so far? I'll, I'll just admit to you, I read this too many times. Chapter 30, you always skip to chapter 31, verse 1 through 31, but uh, a lot of stuff here. He goes on, chapter 18, verse 18 through 20, lists another list, four things that are too wonderful. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. So really tacking on to both man and woman there. Things that are too wonderful uh, for me to see and all of this. So there's a lot there to contemplate really and think about and try to get your mind wrapped around what he's trying to get us to see. Still working on most of it. Chapter, uh, verse 21 through 23. Four things that make the earth quake. He says, three things, the earth is perturbed, or four, three things, the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four, it cannot bear up for a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. Some other things I'm trying to figure out, what, is, what are we supposed to get from those statements? So... Um, Four small but wise things, verse 24. 
There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in summer. We've already read about the ant, chapter 6, right? Go to the ant, you sluggard. So it mentions them here again. Then it says the rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no kings, yet they all advance in ranks. Uh, the spider skillfully grasps with its hands and is in king's palaces. I think instead of spiders, it's, it's probably lizards. I made this point before. Can you imagine a, a spider that has hands? Uh, you couldn't burn the house down fast enough if I saw a spider that actually had hands on the end of its legs. So those are small but wise things. Stately things in the next part, verse, 20, verse 29 through 31. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. And then the remaining two verses. The danger of plotting evil and anger, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. Seems to be talking about forcing things. I'm not sure I follow the, the logic of the reading. I know it's there, but you still try to wrap your mind around how these things are written. Does anybody have anything, any, any words of wisdom in how to view some of these things? Yes? Yeah, Tanya's referencing the, a couple, maybe a couple of places there in Acts where it talks about the apostles are, are viewed from those on the outside as people who are turning the world upside down, causing all kinds of upheaval in, in the world for good, obviously, but it wasn't looked at that way by those that were outside necessarily. So uh, there's some parallels there, absolutely. These are... These are difficult, difficult things. It's a difficult chapter. I really struggle with it. I'm going to keep on, keep on digging with it and, uh, and thinking about it. Anybody else have anything to, to bring to light here? To me, Agur, I don't know if he's a real guy. Maybe he is. I mean, we're not, we're not told. But he's nowhere else mentioned in the scriptures. This is it. There's the word, that name doesn't appear outside of the scriptures either. There's some people that think that Agur is this prototype, a model reader of the wisdom literature of Solomon, in, especially in the Proverbs. That he's, he's reading it and, and coming to it based on, I'm going to abase myself and I'm going to submit myself to God's sayings and these are my thoughts about that. Uh, maybe that's true. All right. We'll move on to chapter 30. One, the oracle of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him. First part, how a king should behave, is, uh, is put out there. Let's read a few verses here. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Verse 
to what, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert justice, the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Some of that don't know a whole lot to do with, but I'll notice the strong drink is to be given to people who are in a position that none of us want to be in, right? Perishing person that's bitter of heart, we don't want to be there, but that's who these, it says this drink is for. Uh, so how a king should behave. She tells him, don't, in these first couple of verses here, verses 2 and, uh, uh, verse 3 and 4, rather, that which ruins kings, right? It is not for kings to drink strong drink. What is what will ruin kings? The women, right? Going after that, Solomon was familiar with that. It begins with endearments which show her care in his teaching, son of my womb, son of my vows. And there's a warning against falling for sensual vices there in, in those that we've just read. And then there's this encouragement in the rest of chapter 8, uh, verse 8 and verse uh, 9, to stand for those who have no voice, right? Uh, it says, open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all who are appointed to die, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Now that brings us to the worthy woman. Um, I have a little bit different take on this than I have in the past after, after studying it a little bit deeper. The poem is really the summing up of the entire book of Proverbs, right? This is the end. And it's an acrostic, it's a poem. Every line is an ascending letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Um, Aleph, Beit, that, that kind of thing, going all through the end. All 22 letters are contained there. It extols godly wisdom that is beneficial to the family and society. I don't think we're looking here at a prototype woman that every woman ought to look to, to live up to this standard that she's put there. It's for all of us to look at this woman who is really lady wisdom. This is how wisdom behaves, how you will behave if you are governed by wisdom. So it's for men and women too. Remember those four places that we read about lady wisdom back in the earlier chapters? I think she's, this is the summing up of it. This is all of wisdom and he's personifying her in lady wisdom. It takes all those themes of wisdom that is presented in the book and arranges them in a portrait of this woman that is going to do things that are beneficial. So it's a picture of Lady Wisdom that the entire book of Proverbs encourages us to seek after. Now, I've got some more on that. I know we're almost out of time, um, which is classic for me. But, I mean, if you look at some of the things, if, if she's a, a prototype... What kind of things do you have here? You have a woman that's of nobility, right? She wakes up early and goes to bed late. That's, that's not normal. It's a, it's, this is what wisdom is. It's there all the time. It's providing for you and your family. It's causing the man to be known in the gates. The wisdom is. Um, let's just read a few verses of that and see if that holds true. Who can find a virtuous woman? 
for her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. Now, I'm not saying that we don't use this and, and women can't look at this and say this is a, something of, I want to look at this and try to be like this woman. I'm just saying there's really two sides of this. And we as men can get a lot out of this and seek after wisdom here that is personified in this worthy woman. That word for worthy woman is also used of Ruth. And I believe it's chapter 3 and verse 7. So you are, he, Boaz tells her, I'm going to handle the matter today. You are a worthy woman. So think about that and uh, we can pick up their next class. We're going to be going over the Song of Solomon. Um, very short time to do that, but nevertheless, thank you for your attention and participation.